BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. We adopted a, a posture that needed to be more proactive. And it wasn't an idea of this isn't going to happen here. It was we're not going to choose the time and place of the next incident, but the thing we can choose is our preparation and preparedness. And that ultimately creates a more resilient community. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last several years, we've all seen the increase in news stories about mass shootings and hate crimes. And I wanted to get a better understanding of what's behind those headlines, what's driving the numbers up, and more importantly, what people can do to prepare themselves. So I wanted to talk to Michael Masters. Michael is the National Director and CEO of the Secure Community Network, which is the official safety and security organization of the Jewish community in North America. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, a commissioned officer in the U.S. Marine Corps, where he attained the rank of captain. And he also serves on the advisory council for the Department of Homeland Security. Michael, thank you for making the time today, and welcome to Politicology. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So before we start, um, that was a really abbreviated bio for you. I'd love for you to give our listeners a little bit more detail and context for what you do, how you've spent your career so far, and and a little bit of the, the perspective that you bring. Thank you, Ron. So I have the uh, privilege of serving as the National Director and CEO for the Secure Community Network, which is, as you noted, the official safety and security organization for the Jewish community across North America. 
Um, I came to this uh, through a combination of a life of public service and good fortune, uh, good mentorship, I guess, being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, wound up going to the University of Michigan. I went to a Jewish day school when I was growing up, uh, had a relatively active family. My uh, my mother was a school teacher. My father was uh, an attorney. He started his career in the FBI as a special agent, and then became a state's attorney here in the city of Chicago before going into private practice and ultimately became a circuit court judge. So I, I grew up in a, a family that was very committed to public service and that always impressed upon me that to whom much is given, much is expected. I went to the University of Michigan. I had a, a great time there. I wound up working, doing advance work on several political campaigns during my time there and taking some time off to, to work on uh, the 2000 election. Then wound up going uh, after that to Washington, D.C. to work for a, an organization that was doing workforce security consulting for the federal government. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but it, it was having to do with how do we recruit and retain the best people to go into public service, which added to my impression that we needed to emphasize having quality people that are going into our public sector. Uh, and I wound up going to the University of Cambridge to do my master's degree, wound up focusing on international relations and counterterrorism. After September 11th, I was in Washington on 9-11. I remember, you know, as, as so many people do that that morning and seeing we were actually doing a, a launch event at the United States Capitol that morning, um, which was, of course, ended abruptly. And then a swirl of rumor and innuendo that swept across the city with the idea that a plane was flying to the White House, that there were bombs on the National Mall. And of course, in the distance, seeing that, that smoke rise up from the Pentagon and not just seeing it, but smelling it that day and for the weeks afterwards. I remember seeing the president's helicopters, Marine One, and the escorts coming back from Andrews that night and flying to the White House and him uh, then, you know, appearing on television, addressing the country. And then a after that, I, I went overseas, uh, did, did my master's degree, and had the good fortune of being with a lot of individuals that had served in the U.S. military, also in the U.K. Uh, military. And... Went from one Cambridge to another, uh, went to Harvard Law School after that. My 2L summer, I wound up uh, going to officer candidate school and being commissioned as, as an officer in the United States Marine Corps, which uh, I don't know that I had quite the experience that some of my classmates did as a, as a, one, a 2L summer uh, being feted on uh, <laughs> boats and with good meals as a summer associate. Um but it was certainly very active, uh, crawling through the, the mud and the muck of Quantico. Uh, I got a good workout in every morning at, at 5 a.m., that's for certain. Uh, and just a really great experience. And then wound up uh, graduating from, from Harvard, uh, ultimately made my way back to the city of Chicago, where I had the good fortune of serving as the assistant to the former mayor, Mayor Richard M. Daly, overseeing public safety operations for the city of Chicago. And that, that involved the police fire and office emergency management. Uh, went over to the police department as the chief of staff. In the Marine Corps, every every Marine is a rifleman is the saying. And so every every Marine, whether you're a staff judge advocate, you're a doctor, you're an aviator, goes to the same officer candidate school, the same basic school. 
And when I went over to the police department to serve as the chief of staff, I uh, had a discussion with the superintendent at the time about my desire to go and, and go through an academy to understand what the men and women in the department were going through so that we could best serve them and best serve the citizens, residents of the city of Chicago. So I, I did that and uh, served at the police department for three years and then wound up taking over the Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management here in the Chicago urban area. Spent a little bit of time in the private sector, uh, working for a company called the Soufan Group, with a great American by the name of Ali Soufan. Ali was a former special uh, supervisory special agent. He was oversaw the USS Cole bombing investigations, one of the youngest lead agents on a major counterterrorism case, one of only a handful of native Arabic speakers in the Bureau on 9-11, who went on to have an amazing career in the, in the Bureau, um, tracking some of our nation's most fanatical enemies, um, and then ultimately wound up uh, testifying against the use of enhanced interrogation techniques became the first, uh, my, I believe, the first U.S. government employee to openly testify against the use of those enhanced interrogation techniques that the CIA was using at the time. Um, wrote a phenomenal book about it called The Black Banners and uh, the, about the whole experience. And so I had the opportunity to work for him for a number of years. And as I was doing that, I, I began doing work more and more with the Jewish community. We were seeing the threat level rise. That was in 2015. We were seeing an increase in hate crimes. We were observing uh, not just the threats from um, the organizations, that, not just Al-Qaeda, but the offshoots of Al-Qaeda, the so-called Islamic State and others, but we were seeing an increase in activity in the United States from those that adhere to supremacist ideology and was approached by some of the leadership in the Jewish community to help think through what the strategy needed to be to best ensure the safety and security of the Jewish community here in the United States and um, what that needed to look like ultimately wound up being offered the position as the national director at the Secure Community Network um, and have been in that job since December 4th, 2017, as we've worked to protect the community in an increasingly complex and dynamic threat environment. So can you talk a little bit more about the SCN, the Secure Community Network, and, and in particular, where you sit now in the national security space? So SCN has a really interesting origin story. In 2003 and 2004, there were several interactions between um, the leadership of the organized Jewish community in the United States. So these were the heads of major organizations, the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, the head of what is now the Jewish Federations of North America, um, other groups like AJC and, and the ADL. Uh, primarily, though, the, the head of the Conference of Presidents at the time, Malcolm Honline uh, and Steve Hoffman, who is heading up what was now, what is now known as, as JFNA, um, there was a conversation with the FBI and, and some deep introspection about how would the Jewish community inter address a threat that was coming towards it. And there was a recognition that there needed to be a group of individuals that were security professionals, experts from law enforcement and national security that were serving that role and that liaison role between the federal government and the community. And so the organization was created and it did that job incredibly admirably uh, for many, many years. And as, of course, in any community, when you have a threat or an issue, 
and you're working to inform the community about that, they ask a natural question of what should I do? And the, the organization developed a um, posture for addressing those, but it was done in a one-off manner mostly. It, it was not funded or uh, developed out as it needed to be to really increase the security and safety holistically of the community. But it, it did phenomenal work. Um, it was limited in, in scope and size. And there was often, I think, a feeling in the faith-based community and certainly the Jewish community that security is something that is going to scare people. So we want to, you know, we don't want to talk about security because we're going to frighten people. Because we'll make them more aware of the danger. Yeah, and they, they're, they're going to react poorly to it. And the, the problem with that mindset was that our adversaries, not just as a Jewish community, but as a broader faith-based community and as certainly a country, were not being quiet. Uh, so we had an asymmetric response to a threat. So when you had individuals that were perfectly willing uh, to walk into a Sikh Gurdwara in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and open fire, when you had individuals that were perfectly willing to walk into a church in Charleston and sit quietly for 45 minutes with uh, you know, close to a dozen other people before gunning them down, and when you had that same thing in, in the Jewish community, unfortunately, a, a response posture that was, we don't want to talk about security because we don't want to frighten people was not geared towards the threat, which was very interested in frightening people. And in some respects, its ultimate goal was not just to take the lives of those in the faith-based community and the Jewish community specifically, but it was to frighten those communities and the Jewish community more broadly so that people made the choice on their own, I'm not going to go to synagogue. I'm not going to send my kids to Jewish day school. I'm not going to... Um, have my my parents live in a Jewish seniors facility. And that recognition that as soon as the community did that and it started making those choices on its own, well, then we've really given up the ground. And who we are as a faith-based community, as a Jewish community, who we are as Americans, we can't participate in the basic functionality of civil society. Well, then the, the, the ideologues, the violent extremists, whether they're Islamist extremists or supremacists, they've won. And so we, we adopted a, a posture that was needed to be more proactive. And it wasn't, a, in my opinion, an idea of, you know, this isn't going to happen here. It was, we're not going to choose the time and place the next incident, but the thing we can choose is our preparation and preparedness. And that ultimately creates a more resilient community. It also has the opportunity not just to bring the Jewish community together for our work, but to outreach to other communities that are facing other threats. Now, if we look back in just the last three months, the offender in Buffalo, he was intent on targeting that supermarket because it was a, a foundational element of the community in a predominantly black community. But in looking at his profile, he also had a heavy stream of anti-Semitism. Um, and, you know, and, and hate. And so we need to recognize that many of these individuals are just as willing to kill um, a member of the Jewish community as a member of the Muslim community or black community, that Islamist extremists are just as willing to kill 
other individuals that adhere to Islam, but a different tenet of it as they are a member of the Jewish community. And I, you know, it's my hope that we can come together around that and prevent and protect against this violence. Okay, so turning to more recent history now, uh, and I mean over the last few years, there's been a sharp rise in the number of active shooter incidents. Uh, This is according to the FBI. There are cases where there were one or two people actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a populated area. Last year, there were 61 incidents. Um, That's up 52% from 2020, and that's more than double the number in 2018. So it seems there's a trend here um, just over the last few years. And I wonder what you think is driving this increase in active shooter situations in particular. I mean, certainly um, there's an accessibility to the means by which these perpetrators are undertaking the attacks. Um, So the, the pure lethality of the weapon system that they're choosing, which as a, as a member of law enforcement, you know, is, chilling not just in the civilian sense that this is a this is a weapon that's being used against members of the community but in terms of a law enforcement response if we look back at Pittsburgh on October 27th 2018 we lost 11 members of the community um we we have in our our office one of the chairs and one of the prayer books that was in in the synagogue that day we use it to discuss training, uh, to discuss the importance of training. Um, but I, I, we remind people as well that, you know, there were also four Pittsburgh police officers, two of whom were highly trained SWAT operatives that, um, within, you know, mere minutes of receiving the 911 call were engaged with that offender in what became roughly an 88 minute gun battle on uh, the upper floors of, of that building uh, where he was holed up in a, in a classroom and they were engaged. The Pittsburgh police department was engaged with him while they were extracting four members of the Pittsburgh police department who ran to the sound of that gunfire to help protect our community. Um, you know, so there is that reality of that accessibility. I think a, another component is that we have seen the impact of these events in um, self-perpetuating other events. So this, this past weekend, when we saw the shooting in the, uh, in Oregon, where the individual said, as many others have his, his desire was to be known. His desire was to, uh, become famous. And we we've seen throughout the history of these active shooter events, going back to Columbine, uh, and, and certainly more recently, if you look at uh, the Norway shooter, if you look at the shooter in, in Christchurch, uh, New Zealand, if you look at the shooter in Poway, California, um, individuals that have left manifestos that have spoken openly about their, their hatred, about their desire to perpetuate violence, and, and they're referencing of one another. So they are feeding off of one another, and we've increasingly seen them recognize the attention that one another has gotten. So it's it's not a mistake when someone writes on their firearm, writes on the rifle that they're using, 
the name of other mass killers in remembrance and uh, homage to those those attacks. Uh, so, you know, we, we've seen that increase. And of course, what's feeding that in so many instances, it's the online space. Uh, the, the perpetuation of of those narratives, those calls for violence, which can spread unfettered, unregulated, and often unobserved in our online spaces um, that we have seen increase dramatically over the last several years and certainly during COVID. And it was a tremendous concern of ours and has remained a concern that as we close down the community because of COVID and individuals retreated into their, their spaces and so many, we saw such a spike in online activity, um, online hate speech, uh, notions of violence, notions of targeting other communities. And then when the community was going to open and as people were focused on how do we do this in a safe and healthy way, we had to be resoundingly focused on how do we do that in a secure way? Because we're now opening up targets of opportunity. And remember in the, the 18 months before COVID, we had Pittsburgh, we had Poway, we had Monsey, and we had Jersey City. And two of those attacks, the, the last two were in December of 2019. And of course, then the community shut down in early 2020. And I think we, we really assessed that given what was going on in the chatter and the fervor that we were seeing, that the, the silver lining, unfortunately, around COVID shutting the facilities was it denied targets of opportunity for so many of these individuals. But then the catch twenty the catch twenty two is that they then went in their online spaces and they were feeding off one another for the better part of a year and a half and two years. So we need to be even more focused as we've opened those facilities up. Okay, so I'd like to dig into that a little bit more. Um, so, so according to the FBI, there were more than seventy five hundred uh, bias motivated incidents, hate crimes uh, in twenty twenty. That's the highest uh, number in more than a decade. Um, and you mentioned the you know the, the 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 social media space the desire to be famous the 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 hate the rise in hate speech um in in the just the 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 levels of um hate-based ideology and calls for violence what i wonder is so so the availability of the highly lethal weapons doesn't explain that increase and i wonder what is pushing the increase in the hate crime numbers and and is there something in the broader social political landscape that is changing that's different that's that's making this more common that's helping it proliferate well i i think one of the things that's um important just to level set and to step back a little bit on the hate crime statistics is that you know as we looked at those that 2020 hate crime data and and for the listeners out there um that that hate crime data runs about a year behind. So law enforcement agencies have to report them, and then the FBI uh, works to collate them and analyze them. So we we get the the data. The data that we're looking at right now is 2020 data. Um, we should see the 2021 data hopefully in the next couple months. And so it's running a year behind. Just just to contextualize that for people. So when we're talking about over 8,200 hate crimes. We're talking about the 2020 data. Now that's coming through the FBI's uniform, uniform crime reporting system. That system is voluntary. 
So we're looking, if you compare that to the year before the 2019 data, there were over, there were close to 7,300, just slightly under 7,300 hate crimes reported. Then to 2020, we jumped to 8,200, you know, 8,263 hate crimes. So an obvious statistically significant increase. But we also have to remember that somewhere around 80% of law enforcement agencies in this country report zero hate crimes. Hmm. 70 cities approximately of a population of over 100,000 or more report zero hate crimes. Now, either we are living in a vastly different environment and country than what is being reported to us and what many of us are seeing on the streets, or there is a significant issue with the reporting itself. So I always want to contextualize this because while we have seen increases over the years, we believe that those are vast undercounts of the actual number of hate crimes that are going on in our cities and in our towns and villages across the country. And there's a, there's a myriad of reasons for that, but it's really important. I, I tend to view these without trying to compare different types of crimes of violence, but I, I view this very similarly to how we've had to deal with uh, sex offenses in this country, which are also vastly underreported. So, you know, there are Department of Justice studies, somewhat dated now, but but when you extrapolate the data, there there are estimates which go, you know, perhaps a quarter of a million hate crimes. And when we look at our data, uh, and we work very closely with partner organizations that are in this space, like the the ADL we see the number of incidents that are being reported to us by, by communities. I'll give you an example. Our um, senior national security advisor uh, started his work after retiring from the FBI after uh, 32 years in federal government service as the first security director for the Jewish Federation of Pittsburgh. He did that job for about three years before he joined our team nationally. Um, one of the first things that he he talks about is the first synagogue he visited. He retired from the FBI in January of uh, 2017. A couple days later, he started with the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh. He visited his first synagogue about a week after, and he asked them, you know, do you get hate mail? So we get hate mail all the time. Well, what do you do with it? Well, we throw it out. And he said, not, not anymore. Now we're reporting all of it. Um, we see when we create a professional-led security initiative in a community. So when I mean by professional, that we're hiring a former official from state, local, or law enforcement to oversee a comprehensive security initiative for a community that's working on everything from training to assessments of facilities to physical security. When we create one of those programs, on average, we see a 78% increase in incident reporting in the first 12 months of the program. Now, this stuff's just not getting reported. It's it's unbelievable. I I don't believe none of us believe that that means that there were zero incidents and there are these dramatic increases in anti-Semitism. What we're doing is we're socializing the community to report these better, um, and we're creating a network where people feel comfortable reporting it. You have a certain community in rural Alabama, or Idaho, or a place like Charlottesville. Uh, anywhere to a major city where they're getting hate crime either occasionally or all the time, you're either scared to report it, you don't know the pathway to report it, or you think it's so common that you don't mind not reporting it. Any one of those things is hugely problematic. So we we socialize all the time. And, and what we've seen 
to go back to the online space is that the 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 individuals who are posting, distributing, or disseminating this material, they're often coordinated. So as we've built out a national network of security initiatives through the Secure Community Network, we're now able to identify what one community thought was a flyer drop in Austin or LA or Jacksonville, Florida. We're now able to note that all of those happened in the same 24 hours, same type of flyer, and then we're able to work with federal law enforcement, state, local law enforcement to address that. That's not a coincidence that those things are happening. You know, the FBI director said that hate travels at the speed of social media. And I, I couldn't agree more with Director Ray and his, his assessment. And that means that our response, our mitigation, our preparedness activity needs to as well. So, you know, that, that question that you pose, do we believe that there's an increase in hate crimes? Absolutely. But what we believe more is that what we're doing is we're getting much better at identifying things that have been happening for a historic period of time and reporting them and addressing them. But we're still only scratching the surface. So it's much more difficult to quantify with a high level of accuracy because of the reporting problem, really. Quantify the rise anyway in actual crimes, right? Yeah, in, in quantify the you put that exactly right, Ryan. Quantify the rise in actual crimes. Um, you know, we're we're able when we start a program to have a baseline of what the incident reporting looks like at day one, and then what it looks like a year later. But to be able to quantify that actual rise when we have such a gap in the data set um, is is problematic. And we've we've dealt with a lot of instances. College campuses are particularly problematic environment. We have any number of anecdotal examples where there's been a hate crime or something that should have been reported as a hate crime. And then law enforcement and the prosecutor would have to make that determination if they met the statutory requirement. But where we've had, and I'm sorry to say this, you know, law enforcement partners or campus partners say, well, we can't report that as a hate crime. It's going to look terrible for our numbers. We're not going to be able to recruit kids to go here. And of course, our position is, wouldn't you rather create an environment where the kids are comfortable reporting it, then you can address the root causes that are allowing somebody to feel comfortable drawing a swastika on a fraternity house or you know, ripping a, a yarmulke off of a Jewish student's head. But that, that's a more difficult, I, I guess in their minds, problem to solve. It is the right way to solve the problem, in my opinion. So this feels like a good uh, place for a brief detour into the law. Um, because there's there's one thing if you're not familiar with um, with the history of hate crime legislation, it can be a bit of a head scratcher to understand how there is a constitutionally protected right to free speech, and yet hate crime legislation, hate crimes hinge upon the motive of the perpetrator, um, or sentencing can include the motive of the perpetrator. So. Can you can you briefly um, just untangle that question for anybody who might be confused? Because once upon a time, I was one of those people who didn't really fully get the constitutionality of hate crimes legislation, um, and, and I think it'd be helpful before we before we continue. So, how is it that this um, that the that the motive that that hate is protected, right? Hate speech is protected. Um, how can that be? a qualifier for a particular class of crime. 
so without getting uh, too too far down the rabbit hole of that, um, you know, m- most basically in, in criminal law, um, there's something that we call mens rea, which is the mental element of a person's intention to commit a crime. So, you know, people people have often said, well, we can't we can't criminalize what's in someone's head. Well, we do that all the time in the the criminal law. Um, it goes to someone's intent to commit the crime. So certainly that this confluence is, as you point out, between the, the hate speech component um, or the First Amendment right, you know, there, there is absolutely a, a First Amendment right to say any number of things. But once you commit a crime, uh, those things which are motivating you in committing that crime are absolutely things that can be dealt with um, and that can lead to to different, you know, punishments, essentially. Um, it, it's the difference between mistakenly running someone over with your car, and, and this is an oversimplification, but mistakenly hitting someone with your car or running them over versus saying uh, that that person just swore at me and I'm going to go out of my way to hit them. Uh, that That's the difference between not having uh, intent and, and having intent. And very similarly, there's different degrees to that intent. Um, we have a different standard for when something is in the heat of the moment versus when it's a premeditated act. Uh, and so this is really, you know, th- this is really in many respects no different than that. Um, although there, there are some, of course, that would, that would like to diminish the difference and say you can't punish somebody for what's, what's in their mind. Well, we, we do that all the time in the criminal law. Uh, as as it exists, that's a far different thing, though, than saying, "Yeah, we deal with people all the time." And looking at the online space, who are saying awful, atrocious things, um, there is a line that gets drawn between saying uh, certain things that are protected by the First Amendment and then making a threat or stating that they're going to take an action which is going to result in in someone's harm. That's a really helpful uh, distinction. So. Um... The American Jewish Committee released a survey last fall showing that one in four Jews had been the subject of anti-Semitism in the last year. Nearly 40% said they had altered their behavior as a result of it. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the increase in hate crimes and anti-Semitism and how it's impacted the Jewish community today. So I don't think there's a monolithic answer, first of all. The, the community itself is not monolithic, and this is a really important point to make and hopefully one we can spend some more time on. We want to be conscious when we talk about safety and security issues that different elements of the community receive those very, very differently. Um, we have individuals in the community that are, by their appearance, by their address, easily identifiable. Uh as as being members of the community, whether they're they're Orthodox or Haredi or or depending on what what sect they belong to, you have other members of the community that um, could could look like they're walking into uh, you know an, any different facility on any different day. Um, we have you know Ashkenazic and Sephardic, Orthodox, Reform and Conservative. We have uh, Jews of color. We, you know, it, it runs runs the gamut. So I just want to be conscious that there is no one lived experience, and it's important to point point that out on the hate crimes piece. Though how the community is receiving that, 
I would like to think that by the virtue of the fact that we're seeing increases in reporting means that we are socializing, particularly in those areas where we can't have a baseline, to go to the point earlier, that we are able to identify that when we create programs, when we create a coordinated, professionally-led approach in a community, we are seeing results, that we are seeing people be comfortable reporting things. There's a mechanism to report them, and they're seeing outcomes and action related to that. Now, that outcome, you know, when you see the, the common phrase, see something, say something, you know, a lot of times we're going to see something, we're going to say something, and then it, it goes away into a law enforcement investigation. People don't always see the outcome of that. But there are other times when we very much do. Um, one, and, you know, last week there was a, a tip that came in from one of our overseas partners, our, our counterparts in the UK, the Community Security Trust, uh, related to some threats that they saw online. Our, our team of analysts at our Jewish Security Operations Command Center, our, our JSOC, our 24-7 command center, tracked down the individual that made the threats. Our security director that's based in um, Las Vegas, Nevada, Beth Lamana, she's a 32-year veteran of the FBI, worked with state, local, and federal law enforcement. They uh, issued an arrest warrant for the individual for making domestic terrorist threats, and he was arrested. Very clear outcome. Very clear case, too. He made dozens and dozens of openly violent threats against the community. Um, in other cases where you're not going to see that, but where it's important is the activity that we're undertaking in the community, the training that we're doing, the work with communities where they're being, where they're doing facility assessments and working on physical security. They're applying for federal and state grants to enhance the security. Um, whether it's their synagogue, a Jewish day school, a camp, or we're partnering with other faith-based communities to help uh, the mosque down the street or um, the Baptist church, as we've done in countless places. And the same is true with training, which I happen to believe is one of the greatest um, skill sets that we can pass along. And it is probably this has the single greatest return on investment in terms of resiliency. And it's uh, Training is agnostic in the best possible way. After Christchurch happened, our security directors and communities around the country offered the active threat training that we've developed as a community to our brothers and sisters in, in the Muslim community and to our brothers and sisters in the Sikh community who are often uh, the unintentional targets when these individuals are think they're targeting the Muslim community or they just want to target somebody. Um, so... I think we're, I'm not discouraged by the increase in reporting. I think we should all be horrified at the number of hate crimes that occur in this country. We should be uh, infuriated that they're not being reported properly and they're not always being prosecuted appropriately. And we should be making resources. Most mem most of the individuals in law enforcement, I think most prosecutors, they want to be able to effectively take in these reports uh, and then prosecute them. We live in a time where diminished resources, diminished training uh, across the board. This is something, though, that needs to be a priority for all of us to say, no, these resources need to be provided, whether at the state, local, or federal level, so that we can not just train the community to report them. We can also ensure that our partners in law enforcement and the prosecutors are able to investigate and prosecute them appropriately and send a strong message that this hate will not be tolerated. We will not allow it to become normalized. 
and it has become far too normalized in this society in so many ways. I want to just underscore your point about investigation and prosecution because we talk regularly with um, Professor Catherine Sanderson, who's the uh, chair, psychology chair at Amherst and um, is a friend of the show, comes on frequently, and she wrote a book called Moral Rebels. And a huge part of the thinking of being a moral rebel, uh, of speaking out, see something, say something, essentially, right, is thinking that taking a stand will make a difference, will lead to some change. And and it just goes to the the need for investigation and prosecution and the better and the better handling of these reports um, in order to encourage you know more reports themselves, right? Yeah, and I, I think a big part of that is is the community standing together. Um, and first of all, the Jewish community standing together, recognizing that and I think we've done this as a very good collective system and, and SCN and our federation system plays a huge part in this. It is a collective strength, but also a potential weakness of the community that regardless of where an attack or incident happens, the Jewish community receives it as an attack on the whole. That's, it's important. We need to feel that way. Um, it would be hugely problematic if we were able to dismiss a swastika on a synagogue in Dothan, Alabama, but um, you know, have a march down Michigan Avenue in Chicago if a similarly sized situ- synagogue here had that same event. The, the problem, the other side of that coin, though, is, is that those who we are seeking to address, those who have, that are intent on violence, that are intent on threatening the community, know that as well, which means that they can have the same impact, if not a greater impact, by attacking a community in a more underserved, under-resourced area than they need to in attacking it in a major city. Um, and that means it becomes the responsibility of all of us the Jewish community, working with law enforcement, the broader faith-based community and civil society to ensure that all of our facilities, uh, all of our institutions are protected. No American should be harassed, victimized, or assaulted because of their faith. And they shouldn't be intimidated to the point where they consider not expressing that faith. So when you go to that study that you quoted a few minutes ago from the AJC, of the idea of hiding identity. Now, in Europe, Jews routinely choose not to express who they are. They're sometimes warned by their governments not to express who they are. That cannot be the case in the United States for any person of faith, whether it's a Jewish man wearing a kippah, a Sikh man wearing a pagri, a Muslim woman wearing a hijab. We need to stand up and say that that is simply unacceptable. And if we see the statistics going in the direction, as you indicated, where, you know, one in four Jews has been the subject of anti-Semitism and 40% have altered their behavior out of fear. If that 40% altering means that, okay, I'm going to go insist that my, my synagogue get training. I'm going to insist that we work with law enforcement. I'm going to insist that we work with other faith-based communities to create a more resilient community for all of us. That's not a bad thing. If, however, it is, I'm not sending my kid to Jewish day school, I'm not walking into a house of worship, then that's a very different proposition. And our goal is to make sure it's the former, not the latter. 
I want to turn our gaze now to the rise in anti-Semitism, looking at it through the political spectrum, because it's on the it's on the left and the right, and I I wonder how you read this. There's a, there's a couple of examples I'll I'll point out, but I'm really interested in in your broader thoughts on the on the question. The mapping project in Boston created a map of schools, corporations, nonprofits, police departments that had quote unquote ties to Jewish organizations or philanthropists as part of the BDS movement. Uh, the head of the New England chapter of the Anti-Defamation League called the map a Jewish hit list, quote unquote. Then there's the refusal of groups like the Sunrise Movement to partner with Jewish groups that support Israel. Um, and I just wonder if you can sort of walk our listeners through the different forms that anti-Semitism takes, depending on whether it's on the left or the right of the political spectrum and how you how you view that um, that tension. At the end of the day or the beginning of the day, depending on where you're starting your day, I, I'm a security expert. Um, the The politics of these issues to me. And I say this from where I sit, not as not as a Jew, as a person of faith, but as a security expert. Um, the discussions around motivation and ideology, uh, those are for others to have in contravention of what I just said. I, I do believe we do a disservice to mention the idea of far left and far right. I, I frankly feel that the people that wish to harm uh, whether it's the Jewish community or other faith-based communities, but certainly in speaking for the Jewish community on the security side, they don't deserve a space on a rationalized, legitimized political spectrum. The individuals who we are looking at, the over 365 individuals and incidents and threats that we've referred to federal law enforcement in the last six months are individuals that should not be placed in any civil society on a political spectrum that um, others that that is a part of a rational discourse on the body politic. Um, that being said, from the security expert side, you know, the the discussion around those groups and around motivation and ideology um, is somewhat irrelevant to us as security experts. No less so than the idea of whether it is a uh, member of a violent extremist group who adheres to supremacist ideology or Islamist ideology. Um, when they're walking through the door with a high-capacity uh, AR-15 intent on taking Jewish life, that is where our focus is. And the broader community, I, I think there, there's a lot to be gained, and there's certainly very interesting arguments on on all sides for people to have about these different groups and where they fall. Um, I encourage the community to have that. I would just ask whatever room they're having it in, they have locked the front door and they have taken appropriate security precautions to ensure that everyone inside the facility is safe and secure. And that's, that's really where we sit. Fair answer. Um, before we move on, because I'd like to talk about some real practical advice, things that people can do to prepare. Before we do, though, I want to ask you about your thoughts on the Salman Rushdie attack and how how you read that event. Because one of the one of the things that stood out to me was the way the news apparatus covered it. 
And I saw a lot of headlines that pointed to Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses, and said his writing made him a target of this attack. And I kind of, I, I get it, but I was, I was struck by the victim shaming of that characterization when in fact the, an extremist ideology, a fatwa that had been issued is what made him a, ta- a target, not his writing. And I wonder if that's an example that you see in other, um, in other places in the ways uh, hate crimes recovered, or was that, you know, was that just an anomaly? It, it's a great question. Um, there is no no question in my mind in the the rusty example of who's responsible. And we we do get this question, but in in the rusty example, it is the individual who undertook the act of violence, and those who condoned and encouraged it. And it's as simple as that. There should not be a circumstance where where any individual, you know, a, someone whether it's a journalist or an author, or a member of the community can't go into a public forum to to speak, uh, and they are they're attacked in in that manner. So we get this question a lot, um, and it actually goes back to to the the conversation that we just had about the political violent the political question of of who is responsible. What is responsible? Well, those who are committing the acts of violence are responsible at the end of the day. Um, there's a lot of things that go into that in terms of the amplification and encouragement to violence, uh, the the spreading of hate. And we see that in the online space, particularly, although it's always been there. I mean, if you you look back and you look at the trajectory for a number of these groups, right? That you go back 30, 40 years uh, on the Islamist extremist side, they were communicating their message via audio tapes. Uh, they then moved to videotapes. They disseminated via CDs. Uh, you know, the, the bin Laden's fatwas and, and his videos that were disseminated, the Anwar al-Awlaki uh, CDs. And then you move into the next generation of that with the so-called Islamic State and their rather uh, high-speed videos and their, their use of graphics and things like that, which were meant to attract a very particular audience, right, to their, to their cause. Um, and then the next iteration of that, of course, is the online space and that ability to grab someone and uh, give them a place of belonging and then provide an outlet for their dissatisfactions or their their fantasies, whatever it it may be, and, and encourage that along. Um, and then it is the move from that individual or individuals when they actually go and they undertake an attack. And at the end of the day, you know, we have to look at uh, the factors that are going into that and then why we have so many individuals who are so prone and motivated, uh, so inspired to undertake those those attacks, whether it's domestic, you know, violent extremists, whether it's racially motivated uh, violent extremists, because you know we we see this happening in increased numbers across the spectrum, and that's where it becomes so critical. Why we say you can't choose the time and place of the incident, but you can choose your preparation. And I, I always want to 
highlight this because it goes to the point of what are the tips. We try to avoid saying the names of the offenders, but if we go back to January 15th of 2022 and the individual that showed up at Congregation Beth Israel in Colleville, Texas, well, who who and what day on on what map would have you stuck a pin in Congregation Beth Israel in Colleville, Texas? And, and remove it even further, there, there's you know half a dozen facilities in the greater Tarrant County, Fort Worth area. There's multiple synagogues. And so if you're playing the numbers game, that means that we've got to prepare everybody because we're not going to be able to control where that offender walks in. I mean, Congregation Beth Israel in Charlottesville, Virginia, Congregation Beth Israel in Colleville, Texas. That recognition means that we need to be prepared every place. Uh, unfortunately, every facility needs to be prepared. Every community member needs to be trained. Not the world that I want, not the world that I think it's right that our children or grandchildren or future generations uh, grow up in, but it's the world that we have and we have to do the best with it that we can. Um, and right now that means enhancing our ability as faith-based communities, as a Jewish community to be prepared and safe and secure. And hopefully from that position, then advocate uh, to end or address some of these larger causes, which are feeding this violence and feeding the individuals that undertake it. Okay. So let's talk more about uh, preparation then. So we've talked a lot about the uptick, uh, at least in reporting and in, and in numbers, what can people do and what can communities do to prepare? What is some of your most accessible advice uh, that listeners can take away from this conversation? I'll say a few things. One is a um, to expand out the question. Many of us who have served in, in the public safety security arena, any of us who have responded to a critical incident, uh, whether it's a gang shooting or a mass attack, I guarantee you all of us have heard one phrase. I never thought it could happen here. July 4th in Highland Park, Illinois. You know, this bucolic little town. We never thought it could happen here. Colleville, uh, Poway, even Pittsburgh. It, we need to, you know, denial is not just a river in Egypt. We need to move beyond that mindset and accept that reality and then recognize that failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And that that's a hard mindset to overcome. And so the biggest challenge that we have that people need to overcome is that mindset, which prevents them from being proactive. You do not rise to the occasion. You fall back to your level of training in these instances. And so it is so critical that we just move to take that first step to accept that this can happen. Whether you're at an outdoor music festival in Las Vegas, a grocery store in Buffalo, um, a church in Laguna, California, that, that unfortunate reality, walking down the streets of Chicago, requires us to prepare. So um, what I think that is the most important step, and then where it, where it goes from there is, first of all, you know, being situationally aware. Our greatest, I mean, these are the bare basic tips, right? Our greatest distractor, our greatest opportunity we give anybody, whether there's somebody that wants to steal your wallet or um, that are trying to enter your facility to take your life is our own situational awareness, our lack of recognition that someone is either following us or looking at us or attracting us. And the greatest device 
that runs contrary to our own situational awareness is the small thing that each of us carries with us uh, in our pockets, which gives us access to all the information in the world while uh, sort of uniformly cutting us off from the information that's right around us. So I, my, um, my two, two kids know when I say to them, your head is on a what? Their response is immediate. My head is on a swivel. Uh, so it's the simple things. When you go into a facility, check for your exits. Know how to get in and out of a building. Um, understand what you might need to do in the event of an incident. And for those that have facilities, it's about limiting access and, and egress. So have one entrance point. If you're running a, a day school, you're running a synagogue, and it's not just because of the threat that you know Al-Qaeda or the so-called Islamic State might walk through the front door. We have over 750,000 registered sex offenders in this country. The same thing that you can do to protect your early childhood learning center, your day school, your grammar school, um, from a targeted mass attack like we've tragically seen in too many places is also going to protect you from the individual that wants to go in uh, and harm a single child. Or what is much more common on a day-to-day basis, custodial interference issues between two parents that are going through a domestic issue, something along those lines. So we want people to be aware of their surroundings. We want them to coordinate with law enforcement. We want uh, individuals to conduct an assessment of your facility. Stand outside your house, your church, your synagogue. Look at it from the outside. Look at where the access points are that if you're the bad guy, you're looking at it. I, I always give people the example, at least friends of mine, watch the Thomas Crown Affair and Look at look at the museum from the perspective of Pierce Brosnan in that movie. You know how how you're going to walk off with the painting. Yeah. Um, he had a particularly novel way of doing that <laughs> that is out of the means of most people. But the original is a little bit more attainable. The original version of that film. But in any case, you know it's it's looking changing your perspective. Where are the exits and entrances that people can get in and out of? Um, think about you know the basic communication. How are you going to communicate with your loved ones in the event of an incident? Do you have a meeting point? Simple thing. When you get to a festival, a fair, a block party, if something happens, whatever it might be, where are you going to meet as a family or as a group? And time and time again, we have examples of where the training is so key to this, where we teach people these things, comes down to you know, being situationally aware, have a plan to either run, hide, or defend yourself, fight as the, the training comes from the FBI and DHS and, and our own run, hide, fight. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that we have to approach the world that way, but, you know, there's a reason why, if we look at history, why we've had the record in certain safety areas that we had. So, you know, if you look at, in this country in the last 70 years, we've not lost a single child to a school fire in this country. And there's some, there's some technical reasons for that in terms of building improvements and things like that. But, you know, one of the single driving forces behind that is you go back to December 1st, 1958 in Chicago, the Our Lady, the Angels uh, school fire, a total of 92 kids and, and three nuns lost their lives that day in what was the worst school fire in U.S. history up to that point. And shortly thereafter, there, there was a recognition that nationally that that wasn't going to happen again. And, you know, the statistics are are a little fuzzy to get from that time period, but there's some estimate of over 16,500 
public uh, buildings were brought up to new fire codes shortly thereafter that tragedy. A total of around approximately 65 to 75% of communities across the country implemented new fire safety and security procedures to include the modern fire drill that we all know. And you know, wherever your listeners are right now, I guarantee that if a fire alarm went off and people actually listened to it, as opposed to having the reaction of maybe it's not real. So, right, that first you have to overcome the denial because that's the first thing. And that we hear that also with the active shooter events. Um, you know, people in offices all the time, well, I thought, I thought somebody was having a birthday party and they were lighting off firecrackers. Ask yourself logically, when was the last time you were in, an, in a, Chris, a birthday party for anybody inside and somebody lit off firecrackers? That's not a logical response, but it goes to the denial aspect. So you overcome the denial and then if that fire alarm goes off, what do we do? And the reality is for the last 70 years in, this, in the United States, we have all been almost uniformly trained of how to react to a fire. And it is not the George Costanza response from Seinfeld of knocking 15 people over um, to, to scream your way to the front door. It is that we get up, we find the exits, we orderly exit the building, we go to a designation, a designated point to regather, and we wait for you know, the fire truck and the firemen to come. So that similar socialization is, is unfortunately what we need to do with active threat events in, in the United States, because the reality is knowing how successful we've been with fire safety, not a single kid lost in a school fire in 70 years. The thing that is thousands of times more likely to kill somebody in the United States is an active shooter event. And that reality means we need to prepare and we have the blueprint for doing it. We've got to overcome the mindset. We've got to overcome the sense of denial. And we have to confront that reality to be prepared and empowered to do it. And when we do, we see some real impact. You know, in, in, in Pittsburgh, the work that went into that community. You know, on October 27th, that day, that, that massacre where we lost collectively as a Jewish community, 11 members of the community as a nation, we lost 11 people. When we go back to what the work that went in before, you know, that's security director in Pittsburgh, Brad Orsini, from January of 2017 to October of 2018, he did facility assessments on close to 50 facilities throughout the greater Pittsburgh community. He personally, personally trained over 6,000 members of the Pittsburgh community in those 18 months in 136 trainings to include having been at the facility, the Tree of Life building less than eight weeks before the attack on September 5th. And three things, three pivotal, four pivotal things happened because of the time that he spent at Tree of Life. One, he had a conversation with Rabbi Myers, this phenomenal rabbi was the ra rabbi at Tree of Life, about the necessity of somebody being able to call 911. Of course, the rabbi noted as a observant uh, community, observant Jew, on Shabbat, individuals don't carry electronics and very observant people don't carry anything. And Brad pointed out in his conversation with the rabbi that someone needed to be able to call 911. And we have a, a, a tradition in um, the Jewish faith called Pekuach Nefesh, which is the obligation to protect life above all others. Um, it's it is the highest order and it over it oversteps every other 
commandment in that regard. And so the rabbi from that point forward carried his cell phone. And of course, he was the first person to call 911 on that morning when the shooting started. And he remained on the phone directing law enforcement where he thought the offender was in the building. Secondly, the day that Brad was there, he cleared all the emergency exits. Go into any faith-based institution, school, otherwise you look at the emergency exits. There is usually some potpourri of chairs, tables from some wedding, some christening or bar mitzvah, whatever it might be. Brad cleared the emergency exits with the help of the congregations because there were three congregations in the building. All three of those emergency exits were used the day of the attack that got people out of the building safely. And lastly, he did training. And we know from survivors, individuals that range in age from in their 50s to their 90s, that that training helped save their lives. So we, you know, as tragic as it was, we know that the numbers could have been much, much higher than what they were because of the work that went in. And we saw the same thing in Colleville. There was preparation and work done ahead of time that allowed those individuals under incredible circumstances and incredible stressors. And they deserve the credit for the hard work that went into that that day, but they had invested in training. They had invested in security prior. And by their own testament, that had helped during that day and provided the blueprint and the strategic framework that, that allowed them to get out alive and physically uninjured. So I'm reminded that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are coming up in a few weeks. And um, I wonder if there's any specific advice for Jewish communities around uh, around this season, um, aside from what you've just articulated. So, you know, one of the things that has um, been very heavily invested in over the last several years, when I started in this position in December of 2017, there were approximately 22 professionally led community security initiatives across the country. Those were led uh, most predominantly, almost uh, wholly by our partners at Jewish federations around the United States. Um, in the, the last five years, that number has close, has over tripled. Uh, and it is now, they're now not limited to just large or uh, fairly large cities. We have security initiatives ranging from partners in Chicago and New York and Washington, Atlanta and LA, uh, Detroit to smaller communities like uh, Richmond and Sarasota, Memphis, Birmingham, Louisville, Houston, Portland. Um, there has been a recognition by the part on the part of the community of the need to invest in security and to do it in a coordinated best practice way. So you know, most importantly, I, I would suggest you know, if you have a security director or a community security director or regional security advisor that's working on behalf of the Jewish community, you need to be in touch with them. Um, and I think I can speak for the network of those of us who are in it, that if you are another faith-based community and you have questions, as much as we can do to support and, and help you in answering those questions and sharing what we have developed as best practice, we are committed to doing. Um, so it's making those connections. It is uh, creating, you know, what we recommend for synagogues is create a security committee. Find the people in the, in the congregation that have background or experience um, in any variety of areas, whether they have some experience from the military, whether they have medical training, 
know, our most common event during high holiday services is not a criminal event. It is someone having a stroke or a heart attack during services. Uh, it can be at an event where someone has a peanut allergy and they mistakenly eat a cookie and they go into anaphylactic shock. So think of that, um, that group of individuals that can form part of the security committee, whether to work with that security director that's working on behalf of the whole community or in the facility, participate in training. Um, we run a series of national webinars throughout, which we have been doing for the last two weeks. We're going to, we're continuing that. We have webinars coming up on those that hold services outside. Uh, we had one uh, on, we have one on how to deal with individual private security and uh, firearms and houses of worship. We have a training coming up, our countering active threat training that's open to the whole community, the multi-faith community at the end of the month. Uh, so participate in those, invite local law enforcement in. Uh, and understand the sentiment within the community. Again, I'll, I'll go back to the point that every community and individuals and communities receive law enforcement differently. They receive security differently. That needs to be a thoughtful discussion. The same is true with firearms in houses of worship. Uh, in certain parts of the country, firearms are a, you know, they are a, a, a accepted part of the historic tradition in communities and in other parts they are not. So this really does get to a community by community basis, but have that discussion engage with law enforcement. It's of course important to invite the police chief in uh, or senior leadership, but make sure you know the individual that's going to be patrolling that neighborhood at two o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, if the facility is comfortable with it, we say invite them in so they can familiarize themselves with the blueprint. You know, there was a reason why the police department in Pittsburgh knew the layout of the tree of life so well. There was a reason why uh, the police law enforcement in Colleville knew the layout of the synagogue so well. They'd been there before. They had been invited in. So they, and, and not just for, you know, a security walk around, but, you know, use our parking lot if you need somewhere to do paperwork. Stop in to use our restroom facility. If we're having a Shabbat lunch or you're having a church dinner on Sunday, invite local law enforcement in so that they can understand the dynamics of the community so that you can be sure you know, not everybody, depending on background, they may not know that the busiest time in a synagogue is not a Sunday morning, it's a Friday night or a Saturday morning. The same is true with a mosque. Um, so it, it's really important to have those engagements. I mean, those are some of the really tactical uh, and and more strategic things that we, we would recommend uh, to people. And, you know, the three core trainings that we recommend are situational awareness, which we deliver. Most of the security directors across the system deliver. Secondly, it's that countering active threat or CAT training, which is so important. And then lastly, uh, a stalwart is, is stop the bleed, um, which is just a critical life skill for, for anybody. Um, but you know, 70, 70% of deaths are, in these mass attacks are usually preventable. They're, they're caused by bleed out. And so just addressing that, and I will tell you that training comes in handy. It comes in handy, not just during a mass attack. It comes in handy when a kid runs through a, a plate glass window trying to get out to the swimming pool. It comes in handy when you drive up on a car accident uh, on the highway. Um, so it's something that we strongly encourage.
Michael, before I let you go, and uh, and actually before we flip over to Politicology Plus for something a little bit lighter, uh, to talk about where can everybody find you on the internet, follow your work, and where would you recommend people um, get plugged into the organization? Sure. So uh, Twitter's always good. Uh, I'm I'm on Twitter at Michael G Masters uh, at official underscore SCN is our official Twitter handle. Uh, our website is www.securecommunitynetwork.org. Um, and then our, our duty desk, which can be accessed by, uh, through the website. And that, that's where we encourage people to report incidents. We also have uh, several key partnerships, such as with Hillel International and the ADL for reporting incidents on campuses. Um, reportcampushate.org. So there's a, we try to make the reporting as simple as possible to meet people where they are. If you have a question, though, please email our, our duty desk, dutydesk at securecommunitynetwork.org, or get in touch with us through the website. Um, and as always, you know, make sure that you're, you know those local Jewish community security directors or regional security advisors. And if you're not sure, please contact us and we'll, we'll put you in touch or work to support your efforts to engage uh, and help you know, s- secure the community as best we can. We are, I'll just you know, note, we work with the FBI on a daily basis. Um, the men and women there are, are nothing short of, of committed to securing our houses of worship and our faith-based community. Um, but law enforcement, whether at the state, local, or federal level, can't do it alone. And we do say, if you see something, say something. Um, but please, you know, we, we encourage people to report things. It's vitally important if you do see something to say something. And it's absolutely essential that we work together. When we assess the threat environment with law enforcement, we now assess it to be the most complex and dynamic threat environment facing not just the Jewish community, but this country in the nation's history. And it goes to all the factors that we've spoken about, the different threat ideologies, the different threat vectors from physical security to cyber, which can be a whole nother podcast. Um, In addition to the online space, it is really critical that we work together. I I firmly believe the moment that we stop participating in civic society, the moment we start withdrawing or questioning is the moment that we will have given up uh, to these individuals who would like nothing more than to tear us apart and tear us down as a Jewish community, as a faith-based community, and as a country. Well said. Michael, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.